0: So let's let's uh let's move to the word of God now. Um in our um in our devoted series, um we've been using Acts 2:42 as a as this sort of summation statement for the church as it was first created and as it should continue to be. And that statement is this, speaking of the first church they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And and through our series so far, and you, you probably don't know exactly you know which sermon it was, because we've been doing this interspersed with Easter stuff and COVID stuff stuff and other messages but we've reflected on the church's commitment the first thing we did was reflected on the church's commitment to the apostolic message of the cross the faith once and for all delivered to the saints what we call our our new testament and and then we reflected on prayer uh this incredible opportunity and privilege we have to come before god and know that we're heard and to shake things on the earth through prayer and his answering our prayers and and so A little bit at the beginning of the COVID thing, we we got into fellowship and then we moved to Easter and some other stuff. So I want to focus a little bit again on fellowship. Uh, This idea of sharing our lives with one another around the person of Christ. Fellowship in Greek koinonia, it it, it refers to a participation in something, a sharing of something. And for Christians, the participation is. And the sharing is is in Christ. Together we share around Jesus. Um, and, and last week I submitted to you guys this prayer uh, with six parts of, of based and sourced in this devoted series and then spreading out to different aspects of the church's life together as the Bible shows it. And, and I had this section on fellowship, on our shared life together around Jesus. And in that section, the, the prayer goes like this. Help us be devoted to one another. Help us faithfully encourage and comfort and listen and counsel and teach and admonish and forgive one another in all gentleness and patience. Help us bear each other's burdens, reminding each other of the gospel of grace with fervent love and tender affection. Help us not forsake meeting together, but instead faithfully spur one another on. In love and good deeds, as long as it is today. And I, I took that prayer from several different passages, and it's listed there. And and by the way, if I could just make an aside, I'm I, I'm I'd still love to hear from you about that prayer. Um, if if you even have the opportunity this week to take, I'll send another. I, I've I've sort of tailored it and edited it just a touch. I'll send the latest edit out today. If, if you can take some time this week just to sit alone with God and pray that prayer, uh, and and then after you pray it, think about how it hit your heart. What was confusing to you? What do you feel about it? I would love to hear back from you guys. I actually haven't heard back from anybody about it, and you know that can be a good thing. Like, hey, it's fine. Let's go ahead. Uh, but sometimes in leadership, the the silence also means like, ah. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't like this. So I, I would just love to hear from anybody who's who's willing to give me some feedback about that. Um, I do feel good about this idea. Um, I, I do feel like the Lord's leading me to lead us this way. Um, but I also feel like there are lots of other gifts in the body of Christ and lots of other ways he speaks. But so just in the, a, a little reminder. But But in this section of the prayer, we're praying about fellowship. Help us to be devoted to one another. And so today... I want to talk about this issue of loving one another, but, and this is a big, big but, (laughs) that sounds great, doesn't it? This is a big but. I don't want to start or really even stay today with what you and I should do. So here's the ironic reality of my fellowship message. I don't want to talk today about what you and I should do. I want to talk today about what Jesus does for you. And the reason is this, the reason is this, I've been saying over and over again in this little series, especially lately, as we looked at Pentecost and Easter and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I've been trying to remind us that we need to recognize that in Acts 2, when this church was first created, when it was first filled and sustained, it it, it didn't happen because of people and what they did. It didn't happen because of principles that they developed or commitments that they made. And those things can all be good, but that's not how the church was created. And that's not how the church is sustained. Let's look back really quick at this passage in in Acts 2.4.2. I'm just going to read you guys a little bit before Acts 2.4.2 and a little bit after Acts 2.4.2, okay? Starting in Acts 2, verse 36. This is Peter talking. He's finishing up his gospel proclamation. He has just preached Jesus to this crowd. And then he finishes up with this big crescendo. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who received his words were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I'm just going to stop there for a second. That's the end of our passage. That's the, that's their motif is Acts 2.4.2. 2, and that's where we just ended. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then the rest of the passage there in Acts 2 is, is an elaboration on that. And we'll look at that another time. But I, I want you not to miss the obvious thing here. The Lord didn't give commands to set up a church to these people let's do a church plant in jerusalem let's look at these principles let's uh, make these membership commitments to one another And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that but but he didn't do that that's not how he creates the church that's not how he sustains the church what god did was he gave his life he gave his life in love for the church What he did was he proclaimed this message of him giving his life to these people that were not a people. He did this through the apostles. He went to these people that did not belong to God and he proclaimed to them what God had done for them. And then he gave his spirit to these people. And they became a people. And then after he did that, and this is not in this text, but it's implied in other places in Acts, he committed to spend his entire life between his ascension up to God, up till today, until he returns, which by now is almost 2,000 years, he committed to spend that entire time, the life of the church age, living inside his people through the Holy Spirit, and standing at his father's right hand, interceding for the church. That's that's what Jesus did. And and so my point is that that before we can be devoted to one another, we need to embrace Jesus' devotion to us. And and, and I don't mean that in some perfect sense like. Um, You've never been devoted to each other, you know, or we got to make sure we stop and check our brain. It's just this to the degree that we continually see who Jesus is as the one devoted to you through thick, through thin, through every need that you have, through every struggle, through every failure you have. And I have to that degree, will we be filled with his spirit? Motivated in the right ways to love one another. We, we can't be devoted to one another without understanding and embracing Jesus' devotion to us. See, it's Jesus' devotion to you that feeds and fuels our devotion, your devotion to others. We're familiar with this verse in John, John 15:12. This is my commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Right. We, we, we've all heard that probably a lot. This is my commandment that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And we see it in other places like, like first John four, 10. This is another famous one. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You can probably fit, you know, you, you can probably finish the rest, you know, therefore we should love one another. Right. But but I I think here's what happens sometimes when we hear verses like this. Like when we hear a verse like John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another, even as I have loved you. I think, and I know this is true for myself, but I I think it's probably true for many of us. I think it's so easy for us to blow by (laughs) that first part, his love for us. and, And we can land very quickly on love one another. Like, we we blow by jesus sacrificed for me he gave his life for me this is how he loved me and we move quickly to and so i got to love other people like that i got to love other people like that we feel that sense of pressure and that sense of command i better love people like this and and i think that quickness to run too easily and too quickly to I need to love other people the way Jesus loved me without really thinking, how did, how does Jesus love me? It is a big mistake because before we can love one another, Jesus is saying, you need to see and understand and embrace the truth that I love you. I really do. I really am with you. And, and, And so... When he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, I think, first of all, before that's uh, an an imperative to love one another, it begs the question, do we understand how he loves us? Do we understand that he loves us? So what what I want to do this morning in this sermon on loving one another is to just simply not breeze by that first part, even as I have loved you, to not... Take a drive by on even as I have loved you. But but just to mention in reflection a few ways by which Jesus loves us, by which He loved us and loves us. And, and my hope and prayer is that even this morning, the Holy Spirit would use this reflection to, to remind us again oh man, I, I need this. I need to be reminded about this. This fuels me. You know, this this helps me know that I'm loved so that I can love. This helps me know how to love. But but before it's a before it's an instruction guide, it's it's fuel and nourishment and comfort for my own soul that sets me up and sets me free to want to give this to others. So I'm just going to I have th- traditional three points on on how Jesus loves us, right? This is love not that we live God but that he loved us. How does he love us in order to Help us to love one another. First point, Jesus loves us so much. I'm just going to put it like this to you. Jesus loves you so much. Jesus loves you so much that he experienced unimaginable pain to bring you eternal joy. Now, before your brain runs to, I gotta, <laughs> I've got to bear unimaginable pain for my friends. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't run there. Let's just consider Jesus. Let's not consider you and me. Jesus loves you so much. That's what I want you to feel this morning, that he experienced unimaginable pain to bring you eternal joy. Hebrews 12:12 12, 12 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This is amazing grace. Hebrews 12:12 12, 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Okay? What was the joy that was set before him such that he endured the cross? So Hebrews 12 is telling us he did what he did for joy. He came for joy. He went through the cross for joy. What does that word joy mean? Like what was inside that joy box for him, right? Okay. What, what joy? Why why do you have joy? Let's consider another passage that tells us why he endured the cross. Because I think, when we, when we see that passage, we're going to understand better what his joy was. And I'm going to go to Mark 10:45. The Son of Man, Jesus, these are Jesus' own words. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for you, for you. He saw you estranged from God. He saw that you, whether you knew it or not, that you had no hope. He saw that your sins had separated you from God. He saw that you were destined for separation from God forever. And he would not let that stay because he loved you. He said, instead, I will give my life as a ransom for Donna, for Hannah, for Josh, both of them, for Nancy, for, for Nathan, for Rob, for for everyone here hearing my voice. He said, I will not let fill your name in that blank die. I will give my life as a ransom. I will pay the price for her hatred. I will pay the price for his selfishness. I will pay the price for their greed. I will pay for his arrogance. I will pay for the way that he uses my father and exploits his gift to enjoy life without him. I will pay for the way that Albert lives for himself to the hurt of his parents or to his children or to his spouse. I will pay for the way that... that. Dave was was a bully in middle school and for his racism in college and for his pornography at work. I I will give myself for the ways that Wendy put her hope in money and prestige and ignored the poor and the weak. I I will give myself, put your name in the blank, for their laziness and their pride that's disguised as self-pity. I will take all of it. I will take God's just judgment for your sin. I will bear the cup of God's just judgment and I will drink it until it's empty, until there is nothing left for you to drink, until all that's left for you is mercy upon mercy upon mercy forever and ever. That's why he came. And, and Jesus says in Hebrews 12, not only that he did that for you, listen. Not only did he do that for you, this really gets to the core of his heart. He says that that gave him joy. It gave him so much joy that he went through crucifixion and separation from his father because he was thrilled to his core with joy at the prospect of you being forgiven, of you being set free. It gave him joy. He didn't just do it out of, i got to be a good man. I've got to do what my father says. He did it because it filled him with joy to think about you free and forgiven and prospering spiritually forever. In in John 10.10, Jesus contrasts himself with someone who exploits and uses. And he says essentially to you and me, I did not come to take from you. I came to give to you. John 10.10 says, Jesus utters these words, the thief came only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. In John 15.11, Jesus says, this is why he came, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Hebrews 12, 12 says that your joy is Jesus' joy. Like, that's what gives him joy. Your salvation, your life, your real life full of abundance, full of freedom, full of hope. Jesus finds joy in that. (laughs) That's what motivated him to go through Golgotha, to go through being whipped and mocked and spat at and, and to have In the invisible realms, all of your sin placed upon him. He saw the joy he would have in your joy. It meant so much to him. That's how much he loves you. Your success, your prosperity, your hope is his joy. So... That's how much he loves you. (laughs) Number two, Jesus loves you so much that he carries you on his heart before his Father. Jesus loves you so much that he carries you on his heart before his Father always. Jesus loves you so much that he carries you on his heart before his Father always. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus always lives to intercede for you. I know we've talked about that passage before, but don't let it be a drive-by. Think about it. He always lives to intercede for you. Hebrews 7.25 and the rest of the chapter intimates that this intercession somehow, in the economy of God's working out his sovereign power over your life to keep you, in his love, and to keep you from running away from him, that Jesus' intercession sustains you. It sustains your faith. Every day, you and I probably sin in many ways and words and deeds. Some we're aware of, some we're not. Some of it feels serious, some of it is not. Some of it is more serious, some of it is less serious. But all of it matters to God. And and at the same time, He will allow none of it to tear you away from him. He won't allow it. And so in his setting up of your salvation, he and Jesus have agreed to this (laughs) dynamic between the two of them. Jesus does the same thing for you always that he did for Peter just before Peter abandoned Christ and denied Jesus as Savior and Lord In order to keep himself safe and comfortable with the world right you're all familiar that peter betrayed jesus on the night of his death by disowning him jesus was being taken away and and peter was accused of being one of his followers and peter said i don't even know him i don't even know him he denied the lord something jesus said would require jesus to deny peter before his heavenly father But Jesus would not let that sin stay on Peter's record. He wouldn't let it tear him away from God. Jesus said to Peter that night, he said, Peter, this day you're going to deny that you even know me. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you return, i.e., you will return, you must strengthen your brothers. Do you see what Jesus said? He said, your faith will not fail. He didn't say, you're not going to sin. He didn't say, your noble virtue will justify you. He he didn't say, your character is going to return. I mean, in a sense, Peter's character became greater than it ever was after Pentecost. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, Peter, I'm going to pray for you so that your dependence on me, your trust in me, your view of me, your sense of my love for you, your sense of who I am for you, will not fail. See, I, I think sin's greatest power for the Christian is not that uh, simply that it it, it, it makes us want to sin more, not simply that it turns us into bad people. I mean, all those things are horrible, but I, I think sin's greatest power is how it destroys our faith, how it hardens us against seeing and believing God and who he is. Sin can affect us in such a way that we lose our appetite for depending on God. We lose our appetite for hoping in God. We lose our appetite to see his beauty. And it it happens out of hopelessness just because we just feel hopeless. It happens out of guilt. We just want to avoid God because we're afraid of, of him. And we just, it also happens in easier ways. It begins to change our taste buds so that it becomes harder and harder to taste that the Lord is good or to see that he's beautiful. But Jesus says to each of us, I am interceding for you, because as you walk through this world where you're going to continue to struggle with sin, because you are going to continue to struggle with sin until I get back, I won't let your fire go out. I will intercede for you. I have already paid for your sin with my blood, and therefore, I'm not going to abandon that work I did and let you fall away from me. But I'm going to stay at my Father's right hand, watching over you, always. Watching over you Always. So that you will not fall away. This isn't something he does only when things get really bad. It's not something he does for a while and then he runs out of patience. Hebrews 7.25 says, He lives forever so that he can always intercede for you and for I. So, Jesus loves you so much that He carries you on His heart before the Father always. Point three, Jesus loves you so much that He sent His Spirit to care for you and never leave you. Jesus loves you so much that He sent His own Spirit to care for you and never leave you. Jesus loves you so much that He sent His own Spirit to care for you and never leave you, When the Lord was leaving his disciples on earth, he uttered these words. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Again, I know you know this passage, but don't do a drive-by on it right now. Think about what it means. Let's look at the, the, the larger context. John 14, 16 through 18. Preceding that statement that I just said, Jesus says this. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Everything Jesus just said about the Holy Spirit coming and living in his disciples forever is another way of Jesus saying, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you alone. I will come to you. I will stay with you forever. So Jesus is leaving his disciples to go to the Father's right hand to intercede forever for them. But he's also sending his spirit to come and live inside them forever. And through his spirit, today, in this moment, Jesus is with you. He has not left you as an orphan, but he has come to you. It's his spirit that takes his holy word. It's his spirit that takes God's holy word and, and turns it from ink on a piece of paper and transforms it into living truth that encourages you, comforts you, clarifies for you sustains you he, he's right here when when you read the psalms and you feel like your suffering is is unknown by god and you can't get to god and, and then you begin to feel the thawing and you begin to sense that you are known by god and that god cares for you and god meets you that's not just an intellectual process that your brain is working through that's the Holy Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit working inside you. It, it's his spirit that takes your mechanical prayers that feel cold and dead. And maybe you, you go through weeks of that. But then there's this moment where, and you can't see it, where you begin to sense that God is here. And, and your, your prayer time changes suddenly from unbelief and hopelessness to even a spark of hope. That's the Holy Spirit working to make your heart beat again and again. It's a spirit that allows you to have a sense of the grief and the pain in God's heart when you sin. But a grief and a pain that doesn't crush you, it, it draws you to say, I'm sorry. To say, I'm sorry to him and, and to your friend or to your brother or sister or spouse. That's the Holy Spirit God's spirit gives you freedom because Jesus gives freedom. It's Jesus in you. God's spirit cleanses you because that's who Jesus is. He's pure and he washes his bride because he loves you. God's spirit is gentle to you because Jesus is gentle. That's who he is inside you. God's spirit is humble towards you because that's who Jesus is. He's a humble Lord. He's not a stern taskmaster. God's spirit is patient with you because Jesus is patient with you. That's who he is. He's forbearing because Jesus is forbearing. He's he's powerful in you at times because Jesus is God. God's spirit is loving towards you because Jesus is loving with an immeasurable love for you. His spirit is faithful to you because Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus loves you so much that he gave his spirit to you to stay with you, to be with you, inside you forever. And there's so much more I can say about the love of Jesus this morning, but but I want to sort of transition here and land this plane. But I want to say again, when Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you should love one another, he doesn't mean for you to drive by that part about him loving you he means for you to understand that to be convinced of that to be compelled by that 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 you understand that he loves you sacrificially he really does he loves you faithfully he really does he loves you forgivingly he does he he loves you forbearingly patiently enduringly it's it's that way that he means for you to love your brother or sister in christ but if you drive by the way that Jesus loves you, if you just give that a passing nod and move quickly to, i got to do all these things, i got to do all these things, it, it, it's not going to work. It, it, it's going to be like trying to get from here to California on half a tank of gas. Jesus knows that, that you loving others as he loved you is a miracle. It's a miracle that can't be attained by human effort. But he means for us to do it. It, it, In fact, it's exactly what he prayed for. You know, Father, I pray that they would be one as we're one, right? But we're not going to be able to do that if we make Jesus' love for us a drive-by. If we make it a, a given, something we just presume on instead of reflect on. Something we give acknowledgement to as opposed to something we actually feed on. Months ago, I, I told you that I had a sense that the Lord was saying to me, and perhaps to all of us, prepare for those I want to bring you by taking care, by taking better care of those within you. Prepare for those I want to bring you by taking better care of those within you. And, you know, and, and again, that was a sense I had of, 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 a, of a word from the Lord, maybe, on a prayer night. And, and I saw then, and I, saw, I see nothing now, anything unbiblical about this idea, and, and I won't go back into all the exegetical Bible study about that, but, but suffice to say, God wants our church to be a church that loves one another, and to be a church that can love those who come to it, right? I mean, that, that's all that word essentially meant. God wants our church to be a church full of people who love one another, and a church that's ready to love those who come to it, right? So... Nothing shocking in a sense about that. I just felt like it was a particular burden of focus for this time. But, but as I continue down this road of thinking about that and even just walking with you guys, walking with the Lord, I, I, I'm seeing this need in myself and perhaps for all of us to make sure that we recognize that it is God's love for us, seeing that, recognizing that, marinating in that, that is the fuel for us to love one another. And that's going to be then the fuel for us to get good at that so we can love those who come to us or to get better at it as if if there aren't many of you loving one another very well already. I don't want to make that implication. So, So here's my biggest exhortation from today. I just want to appeal to you and appeal to myself to make it firm in your heart that you will not breeze by as I have loved you. That you will not breeze by Jesus saying as I have loved you so love one another and quickly move to the so one another that, that you will see that as I have loved you is the fuel for so you should love one another. You know, we can look at it another way, like negatively. Like consider this. What happens when, when our sense and our experience of God's love for us is weakened What happens when your sense and your experience of God's love for you is weakened? I would say that for myself, and I imagine the most natural answer for any of us is, is that our ability to love others is weakened. When my sense of safety with God, when my sense of, of, of his love for me, when my shifting from security in him and safety in him to more and more a sense of, Either numbness to or fear about his love for me happens. My ability to extend hope to others, to extend humility and love to others is hampered. And I'm not saying that that we have to see God's love perfectly. God can work in our weaknesses. He does. He works in our deficient understanding of his love for us. But I'm saying that God's ideal for us and, and the potency of our spiritual strength, it is bound up and our grasp of his love for us. And and so, so my appeal to you and to myself is please make it firm in your heart that you will seek to understand the love of Christ for you and keep it a matter of focus in your life. George Mueller is one of the most famous Christians in the universe of of Christendom, people who know, this is the guy in the 1800s who started orphanages and lived by incredible faith. And and he said something, I, I, I mean, he lived a life completely sold out for God, doing the most amazing things. If, if you've ever read about George Mueller, you know what I'm talking about. God did miracle after miracle after miracle, all in in the most amazing ways that we can see with our eyes and hear with our Years when we read these stories of caring for these orphans and he he lived faithfully his whole life for the lord and but one of the things he said was in his walk with the lord he became convinced that the first thing he needed to do every day was not care for the orphans it was not um necessarily even say his prayers in in that sense of i've got to do my duties it was to make his soul happy in the Lord. He said that was the first duty I, of my life was each day to, as soon as I could, as best I could, get my soul happy in the Lord. And so he would dress himself in the Lord's love for him and reminders of who God was for him. And that was his fuel. And so I, I just want to appeal to us that, that that we do that, that we we, we look for Jesus in the Gospels, and, and we, we, we just see him. We, we, we don't take our eyes off of his love for us, but we, we see him in his word as, as the one who sticks with his disciples through thick and thin. We, we see him in his word telling them hard truths to keep them safe, but never leaving them in anger when they don't get it. We see him in his word <clears throat> calling them to great faith, but when they stumble in doubt, staying with them, pulling them out of the water, not abandoning them because they blew it. We, we, we see him trying to get them. We, we see them, the disciples, trying to get Jesus to take the easy way out. Don't go to the cross. Lord, should we rain down fire and brimstone? And, and sometimes he corrects them, even harsh sometimes, but he never leaves them. He never abandons them. We, we see how they, they jockey for positions of power to see which of them is the greatest. But how he, rather than yelling at them and kicking them off the team, he gently corrects them to be child life after having been with them probably for years. We, we, we see how day and night he physically lives with them for three years to keep them safe and only leaves them when he can put his Holy Spirit in them. We see in John 13 and 17 how intimately he talks with them about his love for them and what he wants for them to see his father Give him the glory so they can be filled with that joy and that glory to to tell them that that they're no longer his servants. They're they're his friends. When you read the crucifixion accounts in the Gospels of Jesus being judged and mocked and whipped and put on the cross, I I just want to encourage you, encourage my own heart. Don't see that simply as Jesus was amazing, morally committed to die on the cross and see him as loving you. Like he's doing that in this vision of that was a little bit confusing. we me try to make this clear. I'll just tell you what I can do. I can look at Jesus going through what he went through on the cross. And I can think to myself strictly in terms of either his relationship with his father, look what he did. He was so faithful or morally like Jesus would not give up. He went through hard things. He was not afraid to deal with hard things. Uh, He was going to go through pain, but he was God. And so he did it. He's so morally awesome. But what I think can become harder for me to think about is Jesus did this because he loved me so much. Maybe you guys have got that down. But but to actually import into his passion narratives, there is a joy in Jesus' heart because he sees the kind of joy I'm going to be able to have. And it, it fills him with hope. He sees the kind of joy Andrew Steele or Deb or Pam or Pat is going to be able to have in eternity. And it's giving him hope and power to endure all this because his heart is fixated on you and and the joy that you're going to have. So I, I just want to ask us to to consider Jesus and his love for us. You know, other places to go, other applications for you is Hebrews 4. Hebrew Hebrews 7 through 10, just to probe the mysteries of his priestly intercession for you. Um, consider reading and, and marinating in, in the freeness of his gospel in, in Galatians one through four. You know, I'm, I'm trying to give you some specific places to go and wide. Um, and, and maybe my, my, my last appeal would be it. it there's a book I'm reading right now called um, gentle and lowly. And, um, it is probably one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. It was recommended to me by Mike Emlet at CCEF. Uh, it's by a guy named Dane Ortland. Every chapter is probing some other aspect of Jesus' gentle, humble, faithful heart for for you. And it, it starts off a little bit rickety, but it gets so good, and 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 it's just. It's reminding me how much I need to feed and to nourish on the love of Jesus. And, and, and I'm seeing it in certain ways reveal legalism in me, reveal uh, just condemnation in me, hopelessness in me. And, and I'm seeing it even reveal ways that that informs the way that I can treat my family, probably my church. Um, and, and so I just want to I appeal to you, if you need a good resource— for fixating on the love of Jesus for you, this book might be a great place to go. There are other books I can recommend. Email me and ask me what books I can recommend. Um, but but that's mainly what I want to do. So listen, next week, we're going to talk more, probably, Lord willing, we're going to talk more practically about how we can love one another methodologically. Um, I would really appreciate your prayers. I, I continue to try to work in the lab of, of my brain and conversations with others about How to help us disciple one another, to really care for one another, cross, church, discipleship, thinking about categories of intergenerational discipleship, um, the singles we have, the youth we have, some of those questions. So I I would really love your prayers for wisdom, for all that stuff. Um, But but again, before we get there, I just want to appeal to you, make it firm in your heart That when you hear a command like, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another, you don't bypass, as I have loved you. But you make it firm in your heart that for your life, for your life, you are going to find ways to continually come back to what does it mean when Jesus says, as I have loved you. And see that not as something Jesus said quickly to move to his command, you better get loving each other, but as the fuel, as the power, as the food source to do the second part that's my appeal today, is please make it firm in your heart that you are going to marinate continually on Jesus' love for you, and and knowing that that is going to fuel you and feed you in order for you to love other people. We can't bypass it. It has to be the foundation. So um, that was a very maybe counterintuitive message on loving one another in fellowship, but I feel like it's it's where the Lord wanted us to go to put first things first for today.